This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Market here on Business Radio. Powered by the words. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run. Please note I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a supervisor of Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the sale of any investment products, and the views of our guests are not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We have a very interesting show and a very important conversation lined up on the tensions and geopolitical competition with China with an author of a new book on that topic. Uh, before that, Professor, I'm broadcasting live from Rome. We had a trip to Vatican today on mm. Good Friday, um, you know, kind of appropriate here. But we had an, also an important employment report and some other good econ data out. What's your take on all yeah. the data that came in? Yeah, and, and, and this was really quite an interesting week. I mean, uh, it really started out with some of the weakest data, definitely the weakest data I think we've had this year. Uh, the jolts data jolted the market, uh, you know, dropping uh, down, um, uh, uh, you know, considerably um, uh, uh, below expectation and um, uh, below below 10 million openings. Um, uh, the first time jolts has actually been below expectation in quite a few months. ISM uh, service data uh, came in quite on the weaker side, um, uh, and uh, durable goods and factory orders also came in weaker than expected. So every basically you, you drove the, the the long bond down to the 320, and then everyone was so positioned for a oh my god, it could be a weak uh, employment report. By the way, ADP was also on the weak side on Wednesday. Um, that uh, when it the, the employment report came out pretty much as expected in, in terms of payroll, we actually uh, had a little bit of jump in yield, although the stock prices did well. It was a good, let's go to the employment report. That's always important. It was a good employment report. The, the payroll came in almost exactly as expected. The good news on hourly earnings, uh, the uh, monthly stayed the same, three-tenths of one percent as expected. We ticked down one-tenth below expectation on the year-over-year. That is the good news. We also um, had um, uh, an increase in the participation rate, which has actually made a really nice recovery. It is not quite back to the level it was pre-pandemic, but uh, has increased, I think, for four or five consecutive months. That was good news um, uh, from the household report. Uh, What I think wasn't noticed enough was another one-tenth drop in hours worked. I I always believe people paid too much attention just to the payroll number, not the hours work. As we pointed out on this show, a one-tenth of an, an hour work difference uh, is equivalent to almost 300,000 workers at the same number of hours. So if you have a one-tenth drop in, in the hourly rate, uh, the hourly, not the hourly rate, the number of hours worked per week, you actually, uh, it's like a $300,000 uh, drop in payroll. Um, so that was definitely weak and actually tied up a, a, a post-pandemic uh, low. It's um, where a number of hours worked actually did jump and, and now came down. So the big jump we got in January in hours worked has completely disappeared um, um Back down. I, I think this shows softness in the in 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 and not a falling apart labor force, but softness in the labor force. Let me also say, we finally got some decent revisions on jobless claims, which you know kept on looking at. Didn't look realistic to me. That was three hundred, two ninety nine, two ninety nine, two. And well, it had jumped up to uh, three hundred forty seven and went down to three twenty. And we get much more volatility. The seasonal factors which were not working before. So we've had an upward trend in um, in those claims. It's not a falling apart of the economy, but definitely signs of weakness. And one thing is the most important of all. All this data is really pre-SVB, the banking crisis. Um, we will not get until next uh, 
you know, four to six weeks, really a lot of data about the effect of the banking crisis. So we were slowing down hours worked, number of people, jobless claims before uh, the banking crisis, if you want to call it that, hit. Um, and uh, again, uh, that 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 does concern me, keeps me defensive going forward in the terms of um, of, of a recession. Um, it'll be interesting. CPI is next Tuesday. And uh, 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 again, looking at it, X rent um, will be will be important to see whether the some of the core numbers uh, outside of the rent, which we know is going to increase because of legs uh, are in line or coming down. I think the market's now saying like a 60 percent chance of a hike. They either t- are taking this data and increasing their odds is are they still too premature before this inflation data and the, and the well, rest of the fallout? Yeah, I mean, 60 percent is within an ar- margin error of 50 50. And we got another what? We got three weeks of data coming with more jobless claims that are now more realistically based uh, with uh, CPI and PPI and other reports coming through. Uh, that will dictate uh, really what they do on that uh, May 3rd uh, decision uh, date. Um, and, and, and for your market views, is it being cautious until the Fed recognizes that? Is that yeah, any other? Yeah, I mean, in, in, until, I mean, I'm just saying that uh, my feeling is probability of recession has gone up. I always think recessions are great buying opportunities. I don't sell in anticipation, but I know a lot of other people do, um, which could lead to uh, to softness in no crash. I think October lows are holding. In fact, let's face it, despite the weak news early on, uh, the market has really held up really quite well. And uh, that, you know, that's to me a sign that it's it's really positioned for some, um, you know, very, very cautious and 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 bearish outcomes. And the, and the you've got the the bond rates dropping in in many ways that's helped support. Uh, you've heard Boyd say it's going to support offset of, of, of equities. Yeah, I mean you got that numerator and denominator. Numerator is dropping with recession fears, but down denominator is dropping because of the change in the discount rate. And uh, those two have been about a standoff. Well, Professor, thanks for some quick comments for this holiday weekend. We talked with Jonathan Ward, who's the author of uh, now two books, um, and and his recent book is about the the, the decisive decade ahead. And he's a, an expert on China U.S. relations. Uh, Jonathan, welcome back to Behind the Markets. Thank you, Jeremy. Great to be with you. So, tell our listeners, um, for people hearing you the first time, a little bit about yourself, how you got into studying China, what got you to write your first book, uh, and now the second book of of the current dynamics with China. Absolutely. So it's it's been quite a long haul now. I mean, nearly twenty years of studying major powers in foreign countries, foreign languages. I did Russian and Chinese languages in undergrad at Columbia. Then spent about five years um, living and traveling all around the world in Russia, China, India, Latin America, and the Middle East, uh, learning languages, um, traveling with people, staying in remote areas, and getting a sense of how people um, saw the world through their. Uh, own eyes as opposed to through sort of um, how we might imagine these places. I tried to understand it better by living amongst regular people and doing sort of immersion travels for a a long period um, in a variety of countries and regions that matter, then wound up at Oxford doing a PhD, initially supposed to be in Russia-China relations, then moved to China-India relations, Um, had access to archives in Beijing that explained the sort of rise and fall of China-India relations from the PRC um, perspective, which had never really been seen before. So I went out and did that doctorate on China-India. Um, it gave me a lot of uh, insight into how China's sort of founders, the founders of the People's Republic of China, saw the world, not only their relationship with India, but also the United States, Russia, their entire sort of uh, geopolitical and diplomatic strategy at the time, the founding principles of what they called the New China and came back to the United States after Oxford, um, was an advisor to the U.S. Department of Defense in their long-term um, research unit and uh, worked on essentially long-term Chinese strategy in different military geographies that matter 
um, to the United States. And, and that all sort of consolidated ultimately into China's vision of victory, my first book, which explained uh, um, the global grand strategy of the Chinese Communist Party in their own words, in their own documents, both their sense of the past, the present, the future, you know, how did they look at their ultimate destination? Um, and, you know, clearly the risks and challenges and major problems that that creates for the United States, for the allies, for the free world, and uh, most recently, my new book, The Decisive Decade, American Grand Strategy for Triumph Over China, picks up where China's vision of victory left off and explains what we should do about this. I mean, how can we dismantle um, the global strategy of the Chinese Communist Party? Um, so I've laid all that out. It's the, the 2020s is what counts. And I wrote this in China's vision of victory. I mean, will we win or lose this contest by 2030 if we do not win the games of the 2020s, um, geopolitical and especially economic, we're going to have um, a contest we may uh, ultimately lose, certainly, in the, in the coming decades. So we've got to focus on the period now um, in order to gain the advantages we'll need for the long haul. No, it's a very serious book with it's very thought provoking. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to consider, like, what does this mean for me, you know, and, and sort of managing money and how do you approach China? Um, right. but a lot more on that. But the, you know, the it's interesting there's very few things that unite the Republicans and, and Democrats. Um, perhaps the China issue is one that is, um, at least from some of the conversation I'm hearing out of Washington. But tell us a little bit from your perspective, why is now such an important time? Why is the current decade really the critical time for us all to be thinking about and maybe worried about? Well, there are two elements to that, Jeremy, that I think really count. And one is that for, for many, many years, we had this narrative that China would surpass the United States by 2030. And that's not just, um, you know, the, the World Bank or the World Economic Forum or American CEOs who are still saying that, by the way. Um, it's also the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, that's something that they've believed in really since the founding of the People's Republic of China, that they would ultimately become the largest economy simply by virtue of their population. Now, the communists obviously couldn't do that. Real Maoist orthodoxy did not get you there. But integration with the world economy has allowed them, and that was essentially brokered by the United States. I mean, we brought them in to the global economy, gave them access to our markets, to our technology, to our capital, and it supercharged the People's Republic of China. I mean, it went from being an 80% uh, agrarian nation in the 80s and 90s to now an industrial and technological and military even superpower. So, um, you know, we have this moment um, that's coming now, and I think they see it this way, where we may reach a turning point in history. I and mean, this is the view of the Communist Party. We're going to reach a turning point in history in which their ascendancy is complete and they become the dominant power. Um, you know, and, and that, a lot of that is due to economic power. And we have basically given away our position. Um, we have been the world's leading economy. Um, the entire story of, of American power in the 20th century is the story of having the lion's share of global GDP. Um, and I believe we have to fight that fight. We have to focus on that. That's the absolute groundwork um, for maintaining the U.S.-led order, for the alliance system, for all of the world's democracies, for the free world, whatever we'd like to call it, the rules-based international order, uh, to preserve that against challengers from Russia to China and beyond, um, we're going to have to make sure we win um, an economic competition in the 2020s that we never see that moment when the People's Republic of China becomes the, the larger power. And the other side of that, of course, is that many of their own strategies culminate in this decade. I mean, from Made in China 2025, um, the Belt and Road Initiative, military modernization, um, you know, even Taiwan is a question. I mean, they talk about being prepared for that in 2027. So there are many elements here where they believe they've reached their stride. And I think this is true, especially of Xi Jinping, who uh, sees himself as an heir to the work of Mao and, and everybody else. I mean, there's an entire pantheon to Communist Party leadership. But she wants to be the person who converted um, China's wealth into military power and into the arrival, essentially, of China as a military uh, superpower. So, so I think we have all these elements coming together, and yet we also have this amazing opportunity in the 2020s uh, to head this off the past, to ensure that it doesn't happen, to uh, dismantle their global strategy for economic power, to build one of our own, which I've outlined in the decisive decade, how to do that, um, and therefore to, to close off this um, potential turning point. I mean, you basically have to um, freeze the rise of China, rebuild the world economy with far less dependency on them, and then hit um, an acceleration that, that is likely to come through Industry 4.0. And just, you know, we're hitting this moment in economic history that they understand very fully, and it's present in many of their strategy documents. And if we're able to hit that as the U.S. and the 
um, allied world and go and, and essentially supercharge our own economies um, while leaving them behind. Um, we're going to create a gap one more time, and then I think the geopolitical advantages we'll have, um, you know, are, are going to return. Right now we're losing them, and we need to regain that and regain that moment. I, I think about the you know, your background and, and how you said you came to study these things and your first book of, of, of understanding China's vision of victory, getting to source the their documents in terms of, you know, what are their words? And, you know, people would hear, you know, stuff that Putin said and say, oh, he's not going to do that. You know, and then the question is, all right, so China has said certain things. Oh, they're not going to do that. They're, there's too many, you know, they're connected into the global economy. Are they going to really cut themselves out of the economy? Um but in, in your view, if you, if you said there's a catalyst to sort of frictions and tensions flaring towards levels like what we're seeing in, in Russia, Ukraine today and our response to Russia, do you think um, this is the same thing for China in going into Taiwan in 2027? Is there a, a real parallel here to that dynamic? Look, and as you said, I mean, taking seriously what they say, I think that's really where I began in this study. I mean, as a linguist, you know, learning Russian and Chinese, I remember there were five people in my Russian class at Columbia, and people were saying, why, why are you studying Russian? It doesn't matter. You know, the Cold War is over. And I thought, no, it's a large question of uh, investment into China. I've been talking about it for years, but um, it's something that we, we've got to stop. And we should not be pouring hundreds of billions of dollars into a primary adversary. And, and there are two conduits. I mean, one is just the indexing and the know the languages, to read in these languages, to, to speak to ordinary people, um, you know, in their language and understand that and do those kinds of travels. I mean, that's the kind of, um, you know, perception that one, I think, needs to have in order to get ahead of the whole picture. And, and you know, today we're seeing that, that many of the things that they've talked about are, in fact, very true. And I was able to, to look at that both, both as a um, you know, linguist and as a historian and, and Oxford scholar. Um, but today it's all coming into the real world. And, and I think, yes, we have to take everything they're saying seriously. And we also have to have an understanding of their own views of history and power, which we largely don't. Um, so, so, you know, when it comes to Ukraine and Taiwan, um, I think the, the important thing here is that the Russia-China axis and it's really, um, I've just written about this recently, I and mean, it's really the return of Russia and China. Uh, I mean, these were our primary adversaries in the Cold War. I mean, they obviously did not, as um, many policymakers hope, uh, liberalize politically as they integrated with the world economy and sort of uh, Thomas Friedman land of uh, the world is flat and post-Cold War globalization. I mean, it just didn't actually change in many ways the ambitions. Russia and China coming together in that. And it is very successful. I mean, the, the, the you know, I think it was actually... Um, a, a very successful and, and mature use of U.S. economic power to place the kinds of sanctions here. Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin just meeting in Moscow. I mean, they have what they call the Comprehensive Partnership of Strategic Coordination for a New Era. Um, you know, military exercises, economic integration, uh, ideological support for one another. Um, I think it really comes down to the fact that they want to essentially confront and, and even conflict with the United States together, not alone. Um, and this is this is already a decade old. I mean, um, you know, I was living in, in China uh, in 2014 when uh, Putin seized Crimea, and I just see in Chinese language television all kinds of Kremlin talking points being recycled in Chinese language that I think most people weren't really aware of. But that's what was on the TV. I mean, they were talking about, um, you know, basically pro pro-Kremlin things. And that was, uh, that was back then. And then, of course, China goes in and builds the islands in the South China Sea. And everybody asks, why are they doing this? Um, is this really going to happen? But they've been working together on these two fronts. Um, you know, before that to talk about how they've integrated their relationships. And, um, and it does go back to the early sort of Sino-Soviet geography where Stalin said to his counterpoints in Beijing, um, we're going to focus on Europe and you're going to focus on Asia. That's the nature of, of the bargain. So, so we're back to that. We're back. We've dealt with it before. Uh, we're going to have to handle it again. And it's going to be very dangerous. I, that is true. It's already started. Now, do you, do you think the response to... Russia will be mimicked in the ferocity to a response to China invading Taiwan. It's like, how do you see it not? You know, but they're more, you say they're bigger. Um, there's bigger downside for the global economy. Uh, are we going to be thinking about that? Is it going to be, you know, seizing basically free all the all the responses that we did to, to Russia? How, how do you see that playing out? Well, look, I think two things. First of all, I don't think, um, you know, a, a Chinese attack on Taiwan is necessarily 
um, unpreventable. I mean, this is something where we still get a vote in this as the alliance system in Asia. I mean, if we are able to build up the right deterrent structures, there's still the chance that we can prevent this. And that's the, the nature of deterrence is to, to build um, a counterpoint that, that makes them see that any time that they might try to do this, it would not go well. There's still, a, I think, a very you know, closing window of opportunity for us to get deterrence right in the Pacific. Um, and, and that really matters. And that obviously is already going to be part of a, uh, the focus of U.S. Uh, foreign policy um, and, and national defense strategy. So we have to be very focused on that. But we also have to realize that we're dealing with two theaters. I don't think you can choose one or the other, particularly when the adversaries are working together um, so you know, blatantly and clearly. So you know, we have a two-theater problem, but um, you know, if we can get deterrence right in the Pacific and also if we can um, continue to prevent Putin's actions in um, in Ukraine from from succeeding. I mean, if you create failure for Russian ambitions there, I mean, that absolutely reverberates through the whole problem. I and mean, you want both of these guys to be checked. And we were able to do simultaneous containment of the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China in the early Cold War. Um, and that's really where we're going to have to go again. And then when it comes to the consequences for the global economy, and you asked about what does it mean for you and for, for others on Wall Street, my opinion now is, um, and this comes back to some of your early points about bipartisanship. I mean, bipartisanship on China is very real in Washington. You know, I, I live in the Washington area and I've, um, you know, been, been witness to all of that. And it's, it's real, it's strong, it's serious, uh, it's, it's thoughtful. Um, and, you know, really we're in a moment where the, the important thing is to move to an action phase. What do we do about this? Not just understand that we have an issue. Um, but I think New York needs to go through the same enlightenment and awakening that Washington has gone through. Because at the end of the day, the biggest contest we're going to have to win, I mean, in order to maintain peace and security, we are going to have to win an economic contest with the People's Republic of China. And we cannot do that. I think that cannot be done from Washington alone. That has to be done through our private sector. Um, and this is what a lot of the decisive decade is about, is the role of major American corporations in national security in this contest and in, in the past, you know, the role of China's corporations in their own national strategies. I and mean, that's something that, that is, uh, needs to be loud and clear to everybody. Um, we're going to have to win a global economic contest, and we're going to need Wall Street to understand geopolitics and national security as well as it is understood in, um, in Washington. So we need New York, and we need a broader American awakening, and we need the private sector, the boardrooms, the CEO, this is my opinion, the CEOs and business leaders to start to work towards um, U.S. and allied national security. I mean, there's a vast free world um, you know, with, with vast markets, technological potential, um, you know, that's the right structure. Uh, the emerging world is going to present very, you know, many opportunities from India to uh, Southeast Asia, Indonesia, you know, Brazil. And there's a very big world out there outside of the People's Republic of China. And we're going to be in a contest with the PRC that is fully global. It's going to be worldwide. And we need um, our business leaders and, and shareholders to take that seriously. Um, and, and to change their own strategies as Washington also changes its strategy towards China. You know, it's interesting. You know, I think one of the things China's done really well is build out this long-term thinking and approach. And and the question is really, are we capable of that in the U.S.? When we go from new cycle to new cycle and you see the political discourse and what's happening in the U.S., are we prepared? Now, you have some, there's, there's sort of like a defensive and we should cut off China from their global trading in some ways, or there's like a defensive element and there's an offensive. And let's, let's, let's stay optimistic on the offensive side for a moment. Like you mentioned a word, the fourth industrial revolution or industry 4.0. Talk about the investments you think we need to be making in this economic competition, how government and industry can come together to keep us as real innovators. What, what are the types of things you see that's important in this fourth industrial revolution? Well, absolutely. And let me address also the, the offensive strategy, because I think that's important. I mean, when it comes to um, cutting back China's role in the world economy, I and mean, it doesn't necessarily mean cutting them fully off from trade. I think it's going to be important, you know, containment. And I talk about it as economic containment in the book. The two pillars of the economic strategy, um, in my mind, are economic containment of China and then rebuilding the United States. So, so when you do economic containment, and I'm sure we'll jump back into this, um, you know, containment can be stabilizing. You know, it's something where, you know, China has energy and food security issues that cannot be solved inside its borders. I mean, it's not about cutting off their access to, to basic sort of necessities. I think that's something where, you know, part of the U.S. trading relationship includes that, you know, whether it's agricultural trade or energy trade. I mean, those can be stabilizing. However, allowing them to advance in technologies, um, you know, having them 
as a, essentially the, the factory of the world. I mean, none of that is sustainable for a global competition. We do not want our supply chains in China. We do not want to empower um, their party-backed uh, corporations and party-owned corporations. We do not want to empower their civil military fusion and military modernization, and we do not need them to succeed at the major strategic industries that will allow them to capture the next horizon and then commercialize that around the planet. So, you know, the industries, however, I think have been very clearly identified. And this is interesting, Jeremy, as you've seen in the book, um, you know, when you take Made in China 2025 and then put it next to the Chips and Science Act, I mean, it's pretty, uh, there's a pretty strong overlap there. So, you know, they basically identified uh, what they sought to master in, in the industrial economy. And now we're realizing we have to get into that game, too. So um, when you talk about industries and technologies, I'm going to read off, um, you know, here from, from Chips and Science, um, artificial intelligence, machine learning and autonomy, semiconductors and advanced computer hardware and software, quantum information, science and technology, robotics, automation, advanced manufacturing, um, advanced communications technology, biotechnology, um, data storage, advanced energies, advanced material science. Um, you know, so, so that's what's in chips and science. And then, of course, Made in China 2025 is advanced railway and transportation, new energy, uh, computerized machines and robots, aerospace, new materials, next generation ICT, uh, ag agricultural machinery, energy, biopharma, maritime and ships. So on one hand, the, I think the industries here um, are pretty clear, but what also matters is the general industrial base. I mean, it's going to be very important, um, and I think uh, it's it's just a critical element of this entire picture to rebuild um, the U.S. industrial base. I mean, this is how we won the Second World War. Um, you know, our economic advantages, you know, reverberated throughout the entire Cold War. I mean, we were uh, superior from a technological standpoint in most of the things that counted, um, but for us to have outsourced so much of this uh, to you know, no less than our primary adversary. I mean, that's a structure we can't maintain. So making sure that our supply chains um, are either, I think there's sort of a gold, uh, silver, bronze to this. I mean, perfect would be USA or North America. Next best would be, you know, allied. Uh, you know, we have many allies. I mean, half of the world's economy is uh, the U.S. alliance system. And 75% uh, of the world's wealth is the world's democracies. So, you know, that's an already very large playing field. And then... Um, you know, the, also the, the, the fact that, you know, you, you could put it in the U.S., North America, uh, the alliance system, or then just third-party countries that we, that we would like to, I think, swing to our size. So, for instance, Southeast Asia or Latin America, or, you know, those sorts of things. There are going to be many, many places where we, can, where we can rebuild this. And in doing all of that, we will be in a contest with China. Um, you know, their own companies are out um, not only creating infrastructure in Africa. I mean, I recently read that 70% um, of Africa's um, 4G networks have been built by Huawei or Huawei component parts, um, you know, all over that continent. The trading relationship far eclipses ours, the infrastructure building, the technology sales, all of that. Um, you know, we're going to have to be able to play those games and win, but we're going to be in a contest with China around the emerging world. And then we're going to have to focus on, um, I think, scaling them back massively from their engagement with OECD markets. I mean, if they're able to commercialize all of these technologies and work their companies in, that's how they're building in their, um, you know, sort of uh, reshaping the structure of the global economy. So, so pushing them back, economic containment, um, you know, you've got to start pushing them back from the developed world and then winning the contests in the emerging world. That's, that's where this is going to go. And that's going to be done um, ultimately by companies um, and by government, companies and government working together in a way that we've never really had to do. That's what's going to be new about this. It's going to be, I think, a maturing of U.S. Um, economic grand strategy and, and U.S. strategy overall. Well, let's drill into that just a, a slightly level deeper. I mean, I, I think the, you know, the, the U.S. capital markets have been, you know, the hub of all innovation. I mean, you know, as you say, if there is a country who's rivaling, you know, some of the exciting tech companies that we've had in the U.S., perhaps China is like the only one who had some of these high flyers for the last five, six years. Uh, but then they obviously, then interestingly, China put more tension on their high-tech flyers and we could put on on their on their they sort of their own clamp down on the rise of their big tech companies which was, was quite interesting that they they stepped on their their throats a little bit more than anything we were doing but the you know interestingly you know in in it's it's been a very robust capital market for a lot of innovation um type things what do you think the government's role should be for those really exciting things like ai and and machine learning and biotech and all those really exciting sectors. What, what should the government be doing here in the U.S.? 
Yeah, and, and look, I think uh, your point about capital markets is incredibly important. I mean, that's one of our biggest advantages. Um, I was in a Silicon Valley defense conference some years ago, and um, panelists remarked that um, 20% of U.S. GDP was was uh, created by venture-backed companies. I thought how extraordinary that is. I mean, that's our system working right. When when U.S. I mean, we want U.S. capitalism to win this, but you know, the challenge is that U.S. capitalism is being eaten <laughs> by by. I, um, you know, Communist Party mercantilism at the moment. So, so we need to get into a contest we can win. Um, so, look, I think government um, has has actually a, 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 you know, this is, is is debated and it's I think a good debate for us to have. But um, the track record on many things is is important. I mean, if you look at the space race, for example, or the founding the funding of uh, basic sciences and technologies. I mean, many of the key, uh, you know, DARPA's funding for. Uh, for um, technology that ultimately found its way into the iPhone. I mean, the list is actually very long. So when people are against sort of a, a government role in, in um, innovation, I think they're missing the point. I mean, we want the combination of our, you know, our innovation ecosystem has to utilize all of these functions. And I think what government can do is it can provide a longer time frame um, than, than we can normally do in the private sector. And you asked me earlier, um, Marked on the sort of long-term thinking in the People's Republic of China, which um, you know I bring this up often. I mean, you can ask an audience, uh, you know, what do you think wins in the in long, you know, what what wins, long-term thinking or short-term thinking? Nobody raises their hand for short-term thinking. So you know, we have to be able to make that adjustment. I think if Americans can simply think towards the next decade, I mean, I'd love for us to see, you know, for people to be thinking 2030, and then we're going to go and earn 2040 and beyond. We need to expand our our mindset a little bit in order to win a strategic competition as opposed to something different. Um, but I think if government is able to, pr- to provide, um, you know, cert- uh, some certainty in industries that need more investment, if it's able to influence investment decisions in that way, I mean, ultimately for, for um, the private sector to be investing in the right things, it's got to have not only a commercial case, but also certain, um, I think, uh, you know, essentially backing for, for fundamental and foundational investment that, that may be non-commercial immediately. So basic sciences and technological rece- um, research. I think the national laboratory system is incredibly interesting. I've been out at various national labs, um, you know, through, through some of my work. And it's, uh, you know, I think that's a very powerful system for us to be um, working with. And then public-private partnerships. I mean, we've seen, I think, um, you know, Operation Warp Speed was a very interesting modern example of that. And then you take things like the Defense Production Act, which I talk about in the book, where, you know, the ability to basically say, look, we need to get this done. I mean, to utilize that, for example, during the pandemic, when, um, you know, China basically commandeered, uh, you know, foreign factories, including those owned by U.S. multinationals in order to do PPE production for the um, for the China market alone. I mean, they basically said all the production is going to stay here. You can't sell this in global markets. So, so we're going to have to re- rebuild the industrial base. I mean, I think that's a very important part. Um, you know, the investment in these technologies is going to have to increase, and that can be a combination of, um, you know, um, public and private sector funding. And I think that's already going to be pretty robust. Well, we, we've talked a little bit about... Um in terms of what the, the government can do now, let's talk about what companies can do. Uh, you know, you, you, one of the quotes I, I took notes on is that often in an interwar period, the success of global commerce leads to delusions of stability between states. So we had this delusion of stability between the U.S. and China of all these multinationals going in to China. And, and you're, you have a quote, the U.S. multinational corporation must release itself from hostage status in China. What are some of these companies? I mean, there's a lot of big companies with what you call enormous exposure, China, Apple, Boeing, Caterpillar, GM, Starbucks, Nike. It's a cross section. What, how do these companies disengage, disentangle? Can they disengage from China um, towards your view of the world? Yes, and I, th- I think this is where, um, you know, I don't think there are many corporate strategies that, you know, written, let's say today, are going to survive the U.S.-China competition. I mean, many of them are too global. They, I think, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, mis- mispriced, let's say, um, China risk. And, you know, we're going to need companies, I think, to revise their strategy. So, so what I think they need to do is, one, you have to find the ways in which you relate to the overall U.S.-China competition. Um, you know, I mean, there's going to be obviously a very big focus from U.S. and allied governments, by the way, on how to win this in key industries and also in key geographies. So if that's something where, 
you know, companies will have to play a role. I mean, it's not just, let's say, you know, you just had Vice President Kamala Harris going to Africa uh, to talk about Africa engagement, but our trading relationship with Africa is, is you know, a third or a fourth of the size of China's. Um, you can put that around the emerging world and see all the places in which we're falling short. It's going to be companies that take up the slack and rebuild these um, the trading relationships. So getting our companies into the right markets is important. But becoming essential to U.S. strategy, um, you know, let's say uh, de-risking or scaling back your China exposure. I mean, at, at my, my own consulting company, I've been working with multinationals for the past six years on these sorts of issues. And, um, you know, many people have the some version of the same 12 problems, let's say, in China. And the question is, which which three actually matter most? Like, which three are going to be disruptive to you as opposed to you're probably all exposed in similar ways? So being Nike is going to be very different from being um, Apple, for example. I mean, you know, that's that's a, going to be a brand issue versus a an actual supply chain and operations issue. So uh, looking at how companies are exposed to this, but realizing, and I think this is where shareholders um, need to start to have a voice. And I, I'd love to see, like, the Carl Icahn of you know, U.S.-China competition come along and just start talking to boards and, you know, getting in there and and making, you know, bringing this to the table where you're going to have to make different decisions. Because if if your exposure to China is so robust that let's say you're Apple and you're earning 19% of your revenue there, your supply chain's built there, you know, he's talking about um, moving production of other countries like India, but still up to 2024, according to the FT, all the key Apple products are going to be 90% made in China. I mean, that's not a sustainable position um, for the geopolitical time we're going to go through. And yet Tim Cook is a supply chain genius. I mean, if, if someone's going to figure this out, which is why we need the corporate leaders, it's going to be from the private sector. And we want to, I think, have um, a, a, a you know, Mr. Cook talked about his symbiotic relationship with the People's Republic of China. That's the wrong uh, zone, Tim. I mean, it's, it, we want the symbiotic relationship between the necessary changes in U.S. strategy and our corporate leaders. I mean, we want people like Tim Cook solving supply chain strategies that are in the interest of national security. And we want people like Elon Musk building factories in America that can do next generation stuff and reduce our dependency. I mean, there, a lot of this is going to come from the private sector, but we need them focused, in my mind, on um, not only the risks they're taking, but the the road ahead and, and, and what the opportunities are to rebuild. Um, so, so, you know, three things really, I mean, reducing China risk, um, figuring out how you fit into a U.S. response, and then also winning in, in emerging markets. I mean, they're going to have to go head to head with Chinese state-owned and state-backed enterprises all over planet Earth, and we need our companies to win those contests. It is a different model um, the, with so much state ownership versus uh, we don't really have as much of that. And, and there was a lot of thought and hope that the interconnectedness of the business relationships would lead to less conflict over time. Um, but it is it is interesting, your view on these, you know, some of our biggest companies with, with Apple and Tesla uh, being in, in, innately ingrained in China. It's going to be very interesting how, how this plays out. Um, in terms of one of the things you a, a quote that I, I liked if we if we go um, a, a step forward you, one of the quotes I liked is Americans think that their biggest advantage is nuclear weapons uh, it is not your biggest weapon is the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency this is coming up again and again right now um, and even just in the news cycle recently they talked about some of these countries coming together with China the BRICS country? Should they be forming their own currency? Are they going to start doing trades and things away from dollars? Uh, we have how we basically took the Russian dollars uh, as one of the sort of acts um, that maybe is trying to, you know, really a shot towards China. If you ever did something, we're going to take your dollars. And they, they have a lot of those. Um, what What's your sense of this this currency issue as our biggest advantage? Yes, Jeremy. And, and that's something that, um, that was something that a, a very well-known, uh, Economist told me at Oxford at a conference uh, years ago when I was a graduate student. So, so very good quote that, that I think uh, was ahead of its time. And look, I mean, that's one of the, the major questions here is, you know, to do economic containment, you really have to go across three channels. I mean, one is technology, um, the other is market access, and the third is capital. And I think where this begins, um, and I'll get to your, your um, question about the dollars reserves currency uh, shortly, but where it begins is we've got to start restricting um, capital into China. I mean, we, we really shouldn't have, just from a national security and basic strategy perspective, we should not have our major pension funds um, pouring money into China. I mean, you, we shouldn't have our major index creators, um, you know, making sure that there's hundreds of billions flowing into a primary adversary. I mean, you can find... Um, 
you know, as early as, you know, early this year, I was still able to find uh, companies on, on the MSCI. There is, is corporate capital expenditure, which they need to do in order to remain competitive. So that's part of the problem of being in the China market is not just selling, you know, finished goods or something to China. It's the fact that you have to do a certain amount of capex in order to shun of uh, investment into China. I've been talking about it for years, but um, it's something that we, we've got to stop it. We should not be pouring hundreds of billions of dollars into a primary adversary. And, and there are two conduits. I mean, one is just the indexing and the other is, is corporate capital expenditure, which they need to do in order to remain competitive. So that's part of the problem of being in the China market is not just selling you know, finished goods or something to China. It's the fact that you have to do a certain amount of capex in order to stay competitive with places that have, you know, with other entities that have stolen your IP and such. So, so the entire strategy, I think, needs to be revised if you're a corporation in China. Um, and the dollar is the reserve currency. I mean, that's gotten a lot of attention just uh, this month. I mean, obviously, Putin and Xi in Moscow and Putin now talking about how Russia will um, con- conduct uh, not only its own um, you know, Russia-China trade in, in, in RMB, but they'd like to conduct their trade with um, Asia, Africa, and Latin America and other nations in RMB. So, so you can see that there, there's a bit of a um, strategic ambition here, let's say, to, to increase the role of the RMB. I mean, they've been at it in, the, in, in China for quite some time with globalization strategies and such, but still it's such a small percentage, I think, of global transactions. I think the U.S., Dollar is about 62% of all transactions, and the RMB is about 2%, so they're nowhere near that. But if they're able, I think, to, um, to continue their strategy of, of dominating in global trade and tying especially um, emerging world markets into the People's Republic of China, then, and, and then if they're able to go forward with, since we did on Russian corporations, on Russian banks, um, to, to really go I think in an unrestrained way after the economy, other than energy, of course. But that aside, I mean, we, we use our our financial uh, Russia and China coming together in that. And it is very successful. I mean, the, 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 you know, I think it was actually um, a, a very successful and, and mature use of U.S. economic power to place the kinds of sanctions we did on Russian corporations, on Russian banks, um, to, to really go, I think, in an unrestrained way after the economy, other than energy, of course. But that aside, I mean, we, we used our, our financial uh, power, I think, quite um, quite, quite uh, powerfully, you know, and we're going to have to take a certain track with China. I mean, ultimately, um, you know, their banks, for example, that are um, ingrained in the Russian economy and Chinese corporations that are, um, you know, essentially cementing the Russia-China economic relationship. I mean, those should be targets now for U.S. sanctions. And I think um, we know how to, uh, how to do financial sanctions against all kinds of entities from, from countries as a whole to their individual corporations and individuals. And I think we're going to have to see an expansion of that on the People's Republic of China. And of course, we've talked about Taiwan. I mean, if there ever were to be um, a real attack on Taiwan, I think all of this um, is, is just a necessary response. But we're going to have to get there gradually anyway, and we're going to have to reduce their, um, you know, their power in the world economy and their role in the world economy. And the best way to do that, of course, is to use our own economic toolkit, which is very, very deep and robust and has decades worth of policy uh, behind it that just hasn't yet been applied to anything on the scale of the People's Republic of China. What, what's interesting, and I'm, I'm very curious to see as all these things play out, like the, one of the policy actions that they did, you know, it, for Russia is, I, I feel in some ways a self-inflicted wound. Now you could, you could say, hey, we shouldn't be funding their capital markets. We shouldn't be funding these adversary growth uh, plans and you know, given the, the this, that civil military connection, perhaps it's 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 even worse in in China than in Russia. But you know, one of the things we did is for people who had made investments in Russia because they they saw, hey, the globalization's happening. These are just other opportunities for my capital, and made the investments. We penalized U.S. investors and marked things down to zero, which I actually think is helping Russians versus helping U.S. I mean, we we forced write downs. You could say, hey, those people shouldn't have been invested in those Russian securities, but they were, and they were U.S. investors, and we heard them, and the Russia basically is going to get to buy these companies back for free, more or less, you know? And, and well, well, Jeremy, and that's why there are two sides to this. I mean, there's one, what's, what matters to the U.S. of national interests, and that's, that's chiefly going to be, happen from Washington, but then there's the fact that, you know, shareholders and companies need to look out for themselves. I mean, if you're really um, making massive capital investments into the People's Republic of China when it is openly telling us it's preparing for war in its region. Uh, you know, that, what, what did they used to say? If you're looking for a land war in Asia, you should get your head checked. I think if you're looking for massive capex 
in, in the PRC now, after everything we know geopolitically, you should also maybe get uh, go go have a second look at what you're thinking. So, so you know, shareholders have to be smarter. This is why shareholders matter. It's why boards matter. It's why CEOs matter to national security and to the national interest. It's not just winning that. Um, it's not just the geopolitics. It's their own interests. I mean, if people could see where this is going in the long run, um, you know, the risks they're, t- they're taking are just not sane. So when you look at companies, to lose your money after Putin invades Ukraine, I mean, whose fault is that really? I mean, that, that is the fault of anyone who put their money into, into a place like that, um, knowing the foreign policy record. I mean, you can look at the last 10 years of Russian foreign policy and understand that maybe this is not a terribly wise investment. So when you take companies like BASF, which had to take a $7 billion write down, losing an entire, I think, business unit, I mean, that's an important lesson. If you're doing this in China right now, when they, you know, listen to what they're saying, understand their strategy. If you're, you know, yes, you're going to lose things. And shareholders need to be having that conversation with CEOs and boards. Yeah, no, that's the serious part of your book that, uh, you know, you take back of, you know, what is going on here and is this going to, the story going to repeat itself from Russia to China and, and all the responses. So I think that is one as all of us investors need to take very, very seriously. Um, you talk a bit about the dynamics on it's is not going to be the, the, the greatest diplomacy of our lifetimes is going to be taking place, not towards persuading enemies, but towards unifying our friends. Who are these friends and and how are we going to unify them? Well, that's right, Jeremy. I, mean, I think we're going to reach a point where, where, where we realize that um, you know, one, I believe in open channels. I mean, that was, I'm a Cold War historian now by training and um, open channels were important um, in that period to prevent especially accidental conflict. Um, on the other hand, deliberate conflict. I mean, let's keep in mind that anything, um, you know, Ukraine was initiated fully by Vladimir Putin. It's, it, I don't think it's sensible to blame that on ourselves for that fringe that might do that. Um, you know, that was a a hostile act of aggression and anything that happens in the Taiwan Strait or, or elsewhere in the Asia Pacific, whether South or East China Seas or even the Himalayan border with India. I mean, these are hostile actions undertaken by a People's Republic of China that has made clear to the world that it's building a military that's designed for, for you know, for combat. Um, so, so, you know, we can't blame ourselves on that. And, and at a certain point, dialoguing um, with a place like this to change their intentions, I think only goes so far. What really matters is to change their capabilities. Um, you know, we, we had a strategy for 40 years of economic engagement with China for the hope of uh, producing international security and uh, responsible stakeholder and shared partnership, all of that. It was, it, it was a failure. So, so we know that um, that kind of engagement is uh, certainly did not uh, prevent them from, it sort of allowed them to become more powerful and, uh, and, and, you know, potentially more successful in pursuing some very negative and destabilizing ambitions. But um, I think that the real great diplomacy, and, and you have to step back and think about what diplomacy really is. Um, you know, we tend to think of it as talking to each other. I mean, it's not just that. Diplomacy, um, I think at its essence, is about a vision and a structure and the execution of creating a structure for world order. I mean, how does the world really fit together? It's the relations between states. Um, so we need to, um, I think, win this long contest for the nature of world order, for the structure of world order. And, um, you know, with America as a cornerstone, with the world's democracies, which in a way are sort of interlocking um, parliamentary democracies that trade with each other, that support each other in security. I mean, this is a fantastic structure to the world. And it already, it does represent um, a very large portion of the world. I and mean, really the the larger balance of economic and military power. So that's the structure I think we want to preserve. And then in the meantime, we have all these other undecided nations. And, and you know, as a Cold War historian, when you look at the realities of the two blocks and then the nature of the emerging world, um, there was always a contest for, for um, you know, hearts and minds in, in the emerging world. And here, you know, which way swings Brazil or Indonesia or Nigeria? I mean, these are going to be major, major uh, strategy and diplomatic questions. And I think America's ability to persuade and to be helpful to the emerging world is going to be incredibly important. We have to be able to offer economic opportunity to rising nations. Um, and at the same time, we want to maintain and defend the structure of the free world as it already exists. So thinking in my mind as uh, of, of the world's democracies and the alliance system as defensive position, I mean, this is not about 
regime change or intervention or those sorts of things that defined U.S. foreign policy in, in a lot of my generation. It's about uh, the consolidation and defense of the free world system and then, um, you know, swinging other countries to our side and understanding which ones can tip the balance and, and, and you know, in, bringing them into our fold. Uh, which in the meantime, we're going to be playing against a very deliberate, very um, methodical and deep game that China has been running for a long time to, to, to do that same thing, to tie many, many countries to its own vision. I mean, the Belt and Road is the clearest expression of their um, geographical ambitions and their economic strategy. I mean, to tie the world's nations closer to China, um, you know, we basically have to pull back against that and pull back towards our own center of gravity. And we're going to have great partners in doing that. I mean, from Europe to the allies in Asia um, to the, the possibility of India as a state that ideally swings to our side and in, in, in uh, sort of robust, uh, you know, and meaningful ways. I mean, there's the, the global sort of uh, picture, I think, is one that, you know, America is a global superpower and must remain so. And um, that's where our diplomacy belongs. You, you uh, have talked about the decisive decade. Um, the purpose of this book um, in the decisive decade was to present America with a peacetime rather than a wartime strategy. And, you know, you quote Winston Churchill of peace through preponderance and Ronald Reagan peace through strength. Uh, as, as we wrap up of our conversation here, any closing thoughts about how you're trying to help the dynamics here, what the overall message, what you want people to get through uh, th this critical decade ahead? What t Tell us a little bit, any closing thoughts here? Well, I'd like people to have a very serious understanding of, of these dynamics and of the contest that will deci decide our lifetimes, uh, the future of the world, the future, honestly, of humanity. I mean, the stakes are very high, and I think the evidence is very clear as to what we're dealing with. Um, you know, this has been my best effort to show a path forward for our country, you know, having already done my work on, on the the uh, Communist Party strategy in their own words and documents. and. And I think, um, yes, I mean, I appreciate that you, that you um, remind us that this is a, a strategy of peace. It's a peacetime strategy. I mean, it's how you, you know, this is very different from, a, let's say, a military strategy in the, in, in the Second World War. This is how um, you win a long game against a global, highly capable, um, you know, hostile um, adversary. And, and I think we still can do that. But I also think the window is closing and hence the decisive decade. I mean, what we do in the 2020s, we'll decide um, a great deal of this contest. And I would love for everyone to be um, paying attention. Well, we're, we got to talk to you before the book hits the shelves, but coming out, uh, give us the date that people can get the book on, on their Amazon books, bookstore. It's available already for pre-order um, in most uh, channels from Amazon to Barnes and Noble. And then it, it hits the shelves uh, April 25th. Very good. So uh, I got a ch chance to get this advanced copy. Jonathan, I appreciate you sending it to me. Very serious book. A lot of thoughts across the investing world. I, I appreciate you coming on Behind the Markets to have this very important conversation. Thanks so much for, for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.